Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Coping in the Chaos Pentonville's Neurodiverse Unit is Changing Prison Life by Nick Jones A London prison has seen a reduction in violence among prisoners and improved staff morale thanks to a new Neurodiverse Unit. Pentonville Prison's new unit identifies and treats prisoners with autism, brain injury, learning difficulties and even dementia. Joe Davis, Pentonville's managing chaplain, helped set up the programme after conducting many regular prisoner reviews with colleagues. She noted that there was an apparent higher incident of autism among prisoners than the general population. Prison is a challenging environment for those with autism. Routines are imposed, vulnerabilities are exploited by others, Frustrations can boil over into violent and self-destructive behaviours. Non-verbal behaviour also makes each interaction with other prisoners and staff a potential flashpoint, leading to protesting behaviours or withdrawal. All against a backdrop of harsh white noise, metal doors slam, conversations and challenges are shouted, all constantly echo through the four open floors of each wing of the prison. Other neurodiverse conditions are present in prisons. An ageing prison population even has prisoners suffering from an early onset of dementia. Some forget the circumstances of their imprisonment. Teaming up with prison officers and support staff like psychologists, doctors, teachers, Chaplain Davis notes that now staff make it their business to work out how to work with these prisoners. The unit has capacity for 45 prisoners in single cells. They share a common area for eating and other activities. Staff spend 10 weeks assessing the prisoners who can then benefit from up to 12 weeks of additional support. Ruth Hipwell, who leads the new unit, says it's good to have a place in prison for those people who can't cope. Support ranges from little things like teaching a prisoner how to make a cup of tea or providing earplugs to reduce noise, to helping prisoners make better plans for coping and learning, both in prison and outside. On the wall of the unit is a timetable of events, illustrated by pictograms. Sessions include how to handle familiar tasks in the unfamiliar environment of prison, how to buy things or use the telephone, getting clean clothes and even how to handle being unwell. Other sessions include accessing learning and getting a job. A prisoner in the unit, who we'll call Robbie, says, It relaxes you, it's wicked. The difference is the support. The unit started work in October 2022, and the difference it made was spotted fast. It transformed staff, recalls Hipwell. They have found their purpose. They have a level of multi-agency integration others can't match. Ian Blakeman, Pentonville's prison governor, identifies additional benefits. It frees up staff time and staff export skills to other parts of the prison. 
These positive effects also help him keep good staff, a major challenge in London's competitive labour market. Other programmes reinforce this change in culture across the prison, range from addiction treatment to rebuilding family relationships affected by gang affiliations. Pentonville now has the lowest self-harm rates in the country and is the least violent prison of its type in the UK. With prisons a low political priority, it's even more remarkable to learn that Pentonville's neurodiverse unit required no additional budget. Its win-win results are a flicker of hope in a bleak landscape. Times columnist Matthew Paris recently wrote, Every generation looks back and spots an outrage. Today, when we think of slavery, child labour and lunatic asylums, we wonder how our ancestors could have been so cruel. What will horrify our own successors is our disgraceful prison system. In response to Paris's column, Jonathan Aitken, a former prisoner and now a chaplain at Pentonville, who works with the Neurodiverse Unit, wrote to the Times, The real disgrace lies not inside our prisons, but in the failure of both public and private rehabilitation efforts to help prisoners into jobs, housing and law-abiding lives after their release. The good work done by prison officers, managers and governors is underreported. We are on a roll of improvements. But such advances are like clapping with one hand if they are not met by comparable efforts to rebuild the lives of prisoners after they walk out of the gate. Correcting the failures in this area should be a high priority for our politicians and for our society. held up a bank by Ryan Gilfeather. Days before Christmas 2001, a mob of nuns and priests held up a bank in Oxford Street. They were not stealing money, but rather paying it in. The nuns of St Anthony's Forest Gate, a 2,000-person strong Catholic parish, saved their collection money until they had a staggeringly vast quantity to deposit. On the day... They took the money in a van to an HSBC branch in Oxford Street, wheeled it in on trolleys, where they proceeded to deposit every single coin. At the same time, priests in their clerical collars and worshippers from a range of congregations in East London queued up at the other desk to slowly and repeatedly inquire about opening savings accounts. All the while... Other members of these institutions stood outside holding banners, accusing HSBC of exploiting low-paid workers, saying, give HSBC a living wage for Christmas. The entire branch was brought to a standstill. Anxious Christmas shoppers stood helpless and astonished, as this spectacle frustrated their attempts to withdraw money. These nuns, priests and other Christians planned this action to secure a livable wage for all who work at HSBC. But they also had broader ambitions. The East London Communities Organisation, Telco, a broad-based coalition of citizens from churches, mosques and other faith and community groups, began to organise for a pay rate which was enough to live on. The amount, which is now known as the real living wage, 
currently £11.95 in London and £10.90 everywhere else. Each of these citizens had been listening to the people in their institutions. They heard that wages were so bad that workers needed to take on multiple jobs, forcing them to choose between feeding their kids and seeing them, and preventing them from praying and worshipping. Motivated by the belief that all human beings are of equal value and dignity in the eyes of God, these Christian communities, alongside the other groups in Telco, began campaigning for a fair and just rate of pay. As these discussions were ongoing, they could see the new HSBC tower slowly ascending above their East London skyline. Considerable amounts of government money had been spent on the infrastructure of Docklands, which would serve this very tower. Telco citizens discerned that if it was going to benefit those who lived in East London, there would need to be a living wage for everyone who would work in that building. Therefore, they decided to ask the bank to make contracts for cleaning and security at the new tower on the condition that workers be paid enough to live on in East London, £6.30 at the time. A number of religious and civic leaders had written to the HSBC chairman, Sir John Bond, to request a meeting to discuss these poverty wages. However, they had heard nothing back. At this point, the nuns at St Anthony's came up with their plan. Visitors and members of the 2,000-strong congregation would leave coins in the collection when they light candles in church, and the nuns were accustomed to depositing them every Tuesday. However, they decided to keep hold of them for several months until they managed to fill that small van. Eventually, on the 19th of December, they set out in it to Oxford Street with priests and parishioners in tow and brought this branch to its knees. The action worked. Within an hour, Sir John had agreed to meet with Telco members at St Philip's Church, Plaistow, to discuss their demands that cleaning and security contracts pay a living wage. Negotiations continued until 2004, when HSBC agreed to the campaigners' demands, ensuring that every contractor pays a living wage, sick pay, pension and free access to a trade union. This victory built great momentum for the movement for a real living wage, which is now voluntarily paid by over 12,000 UK employers. Therefore, this life-giving campaign for economic justice finds its origins in part with a group of nuns saving up their small change because their faith led them to believe in the inextinguishable dignity and value of all human lives. Eden in the East End by Belle Tyndall Feeling increasingly restless in the comfortable confines of West London, Rev Chris and Becky Rogers, along with their family and seven others, decided to take on All Hallows Church and make Bow their home. Fast forward 13 years, and here's Chris, sat with a coffee on the corner of an intersection in the heart of London's East End, flanked on every side by blocks of flats and talking over the sound of heavy traffic. This is Chris Rogers' Eden. I love this place, Chris delightedly declares. I love the sounds, I love the smells, 
I love the people. And why wouldn't he? This is the place where Clara Grant, the infamous bundle woman of Bow, founded the Fern Street Settlement in 1907, ensuring that thousands of children were warm, fed, taught and loved. It's where in 1913, Sylvia Pankhurst established the East London Federation of Suffragettes, fighting for the rights of working women. It's where in 1985, the profoundly influential grime music artist Dylan Quabner Mills, perhaps better known as Dizzy Rascal, was born and subsequently raised. It's not hard to see why Chris describes his home as a place of profound justice, of resilient compassion, of innovative creativity and of rich community. In ways that we're likely to be unaware of, we exist in the cultural ripple effect of places such as Bow. We owe them a great debt. And yet there is, of course, another way to perceive and speak of Bow, a perception which places its focus upon slightly different identity markers. It is, according to the government's deprivation indices, one of the most deprived communities in the UK. It has an above-average crime rate, with a particularly high number of home break-ins. The percentage of home ownership in the area is 17%, which is dramatically lower than the national average of 65.8%. It is also a community that, because of the establishment and closure of St Clement's Mental Health Hospital, has an increased number of residents who live with mental illness and addiction. It is true, in many ways, Bow struggles. And it's not that Chris and the community at All Hallows ignore these facts. On the contrary, they're on a crusade against poverty in the area, working to eradicate it entirely. They're also relentlessly pursuing justice and offering support to those in their community who need it most. No, ignorance is not the source of Chris's perspective. Jesus is. I'm aware that such a sentence is in serious danger of sounding eye-rollingly twee, so allow me a moment or two to explain further. John, one of Jesus' four biographers, opens his work with a prologue of epic proportions. Nestled into this prologue is the line, the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In John's original Greek writing, the words made his dwelling can be more literally translated as tabernacled or rather pitched his tent among ours. Author Eugene Peterson subsequently paraphrases it this way. The word, remember that's Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. The belief that God squeezed himself into the confines of humanity is certainly one of the more mystic elements of Christianity. The premise is that the playwright himself took the stage, the author jumped inside the page, the architect inhabited the plans. Admittedly, it's downright strange. And yet, this is the bedrock of what theologians call incarnational theology, a theology of Jesus's embodied presence on the earth, or what Chris Rogers would call moving in and living deep. It's the astonishing idea that Jesus is present amongst, he is present alongside. If the incarnation happened, as Christians believe that it did, if Jesus really did pitch his tent next to ours, in that he literally entered into time and place, 
then the implications of such aren't only spiritual. The gospel, for want of a less Christianese word, is also a physical encounter. It is intent on changing one's day, one's week, one's life in tangible and practical ways. It must still be found in time and place. The church, as in the people, not the building, is one of the most obvious ways through which this could happen, as they take their lead from the one they represent, and they themselves move in and live deep. So, with that in mind, back to Bow. For the residents of Bow, this thing called Christianity is not a set of ideas that floats in the ether. On the contrary, it's the people that teach them to speak, read and write English in their ESOL lessons. It's as tangible as the presence of the food banks, as obvious as the building on the intersection, as relentless as the recovery courses that run week after week. Of the people who flow through All Hallows Church, 40% are in varying stages of recovery from addiction. It's not surprising, therefore, that a major focus of Chris's team is helping people through those often complicated stages, whether that be through the AANA courses, including one delivered in Russian, or visits to Pentonville Prison, where an addiction has taken hold once again and paved the way for behavioural mistakes to be made. After all, recovery from addiction is anything but linear. Then there's the recovery service. Every Tuesday evening, the building hosts around 40 people who attend a specifically recovery-oriented service by Raf, the curate at All Hallows, who himself is 10 years clean and sober. This service combines the 12-step programme with the Bible, week after week after week, building a community upon the power of those two liberating texts. Moving in and living deep means that the team at All Hallows can take Jesus' instruction to love their neighbour completely literally, even when that neighbour is breaking into their church's coffee shop for the fourth time. It means that together, those neighbours can love their home well and refute the notion that someone has made it when they finally have the means to move out of it. It means that Chris was right where he needed to be when someone walked past their church building on their way to take their own life and decided to ask for help instead. This is what incarnational theology looks like on the ground. This is how Christianity makes itself known in Bow. As Chris says, we are called to love the hell out of our estates as no one else can. I'm telling this story through the vehicle of Chris, his family and his team, but this piece really isn't about him or them. It's about Bow. A beautiful place filled with beautiful people. It's a story of a group of people living in and learning from a community they know and adore. It's a story of the mystic nature of incarnational theology looking like a Russian recovery course. It's a story of being enchanted with one's home. I say this because, as Chris has observed, words matter. The story you tell about a place matters. This is the reason that they have rewritten the words to a hymn from 1885, the third verse of which goes like this. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and see the brook and feel the gentle breeze, 
Then sings my soul, my Saviour God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Beautiful as these words are, the story they tell to residents of places such as Bow is that beauty is elsewhere, that God is more present and somehow easier to find in places that look nothing like their home. In order to counter that, these are the words that ring out from all hallows on a Sunday morning. When through the estate and shaded parks I wander and see the shops and people in the streets, when I look up and see the tower block's grandeur and hear the cars and the sound of dancing beats, then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. There is a kind of Eden in the East End. In fact, there are numerous. And while I can't speak for them all, I can say that Bow is one of the most special places I've ever found myself with some of the best coffee. Riding from Darkness to Light by Graham Holdsworth I'm standing next to my bicycle at a petrol station in Blackpool. It is 1am. I'm eating a cheap cheese sandwich and drinking cold coffee from a can. What I want is hot coffee, but the machine only takes cash and the cash machine charges for withdrawals. I'm making do with cheap and cold because the need for calories outweighs the need for taste. On this night, I'm cycling from Slaithwaite to Blackpool and back, checking the route for a cycling event I'm organising. It's an Udux, a type of sporting experience typically documented by Forecourt chic social media posts. Its name is derived from the French for audacious. A glance through long-distance cycling blogs, vlogs and curated media hints at an experience of transcendence, the emptying of self in the search of meaning from the zip of tyres over tarmac as the kilometres click past. The reality, however, can be more mundane. Long-distance cycling often involves sitting on a weed-strewn curb while a friend fixes a puncture, and though the clouds are not quite heavy enough to rain, there's a mizziness to the air that seeps through your sport wool base layer. There is no film crew to capture this epic moment, and you're alone with your thoughts, which are mainly thankfulness that it isn't your puncture. I'm a vicar in West Yorkshire, but I haven't always been a vicar, or even a Christian, and I've been riding bikes for much longer than I've been a person of faith. As a child, cycling was about belonging. I was part of a BMX community whose hierarchy was measured by how high you could bunny hop. Later, that belonging was replaced with a different sort of identity found through music. It was only when I was older and fatter that I rediscovered cycling thanks to my wife, who thought we both needed some exercise. Together, we remembered how to cycle, and as we gathered experiences, we grew in the wisdom of the cyclotourist. We learned that mudguards and rain capes are things of comfort and therefore beauty. We loved to explore, and perhaps this physical exploration was why we also began a journey of spiritual exploration. I've no intention to suggest that cycling is a gateway drug to Christianity, more that perhaps our curiosity was being fed physically, mentally and spiritually in ways that were not of our making. 
The first time I noticed a spiritual element to my cycling was coming back from a meeting, crossing the North Yorkshire Moors at night. It was autumn, and the evening turned to dark quite early, leaving only a puddle of weak bike light to ride with. A phrase from morning prayer returned to me, Even the darkness is not dark to you. A single line from a psalm in the Bible, this one line on this one night, redefined my relationship with God. Even though all around me had turned to darkness, there was nowhere I could be lost from God. Not being lost is an important element to cycling a long distance, especially in a race. In events like the Transcontinental, a multi-day self-sufficient cycle race across Europe, spending hours cycling in the wrong direction could be a racing disaster. Race winner Emily Chappell in Where There's a Will eloquently documents the racer's experience of being watched over. She tells of dot watchers following a rider's GPS tracks across a map of Europe. These are remote fans and supporters constructing narratives to explain riders' movement, or lack of it. Yet the rules of self-sufficiency mean you are alone. No one can set you back on the right path. Being alone with your thoughts is a common theme to long-distance cycling. While our bodies silently convert glucose into energy through glycosis, and our muscle memory converts this into kilometres covered, our minds are set free to process our past and present experiences. During my time at Theological College, I wanted to explore the idea of physical exercise being an expression of prayer. I tried to grapple with the wordless way our bodies do what bodies were created to do. Can our bodies worship without words? Is there a physical language of lactic acid, originally written by a creator, who celebrates when creation is true to itself? There's a poetic language in the Bible that hints at this, that... The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Pro-cyclist Jens Voigt famously told his legs to shut up. Maybe he should have let them sing. Audaxing, long-distance cycling, racing across continents, these are extraordinary journeys in which we might travel from light to darkness and back again. Simultaneously, there's a physical descent from adventurous confidence to uncertain determination, where the will to go on is no longer found in the legs, but in a dogmatic determination to see this through. Then, with the dawning of the day, there is a fresh hope, a hope of warmth and a return to strength. With the dawning of the day, the opening of the first coffee shop and this long-distance cyclist prayer is answered. O oh Lord, open my lips, and I shall drink this coffee. You've been listening to Seen and Unseen Aloud. In these early episodes, it makes a huge difference if you can rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. And it helps others to discover us too. Thank you. You can also find more episodes, more podcasts and articles at seenandunseen.com.